following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It Podcast with Brittany Page and Jesse Dallimore. Welcome to the Big Old Show, everybody. Episode 872 of I Doubt It Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Dollimore, joined today by the lovely, talented, scholarly, Brittany Page, everybody. Well, I don't want to be starting the show with weather talk. Wow. <laughs> but really setting no, the fucking tone. Listen. Wow. Listen. Wow. I'm being tortured because the humidity right now is like 83%. Yeah. And there's there's no point in doing my hair. Like I I did the blow drying, I did the curling, <laughs> yeah. and then I walk outside for just a few minutes. Like I'm outside for not even that long and I come back inside and my hair has grown three sizes. Like yeah. it, it is just huge and I <laughs> am not trying to wear it like that. Like what era? What era of time would have been best for Brittany Page? In terms of... Like, what's, like at one point in the past, having big old hair um, was, uh, was a benefit. It was the style. It was the cool thing. Well, I think it depends on your job. Like, sometimes Erin Burnett looks like she's wearing a bumpet, you know? All, all the time. So, it, it depends, like... You, I, think it was, I think it was CNN company policy... <laughs> That if you were an anchor, you had to have a bumpet. Because Brooke Baldwin, before they shit can Brooke Baldwin, uh-huh. she had the bumpet thing going on. Too. Yeah, you have to have you have to have big hair to make it look like you have a lot of volume. Which volume is good, but it's this is frizz. I mean, it, my hair is getting bigger not through volume at the top, but just the frizz all over throughout throughout the. You look pretty good right now. Well, thank you. Very ferocity in the yes feathered. Department. Well, and when Is you that were, a department? When you were asking what era <laughs> would have been best, I'm like, well, I, I thought of Farrah Fawcett immediately. I'm like, the 70s, probably because of how just crazy the hair looks right yeah. now. But <laughs> right. Um, so that's what we're dealing with. So it's with. hot and humid. Yeah. It's DC. Yeah, it's I've been seeing a lot of, of uh, not to jump right into the show with news stuff, but I've been seeing a lot of headlines that enjoy this summer because it will be the coolest summer for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. which is a bummer because already it's very, very, very hot. Yeah, the world registered its hottest day ever recorded on July 3rd. Yeah, since like 1980 or 1979 or something. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot to deal with. Yeah, and it's dangerous. I mean, we're talking about our hair getting big, but it's also dangerous. Um, but don't worry, we're going to hear from a climate change expert later in the show oh. on this issue. And- I love that you plan the shows now because it's like a it's like a little surprise. Yeah. So, one For me and the audience. Yeah, we we don't always talk about the the more serious issues. Sometimes we we mix it up in the drama of the internet and and this most recent story that prompted discussion on the internet was about tipping because a DoorDash driver delivered a pizza to a family mm-hmm. 
and the a twenty dollar order. The pizza was twenty bucks, and he was given a five dollar tip, twenty five percent. And he was he was not happy with this tip, and so you know everyone has ring cameras now, so all of these interactions can be recorded and later put on the internet for a broader discussion. Right, right. <laughs> and this is a clip of the exchange between the unhappy DoorDash driver and the homeowner. Um, I just want to say it's a nice house for a five dollar tip. <laughs> You're welcome. And he said, "Fuck you" at the end. Yeah. Yeah, so. So I don't know whether he got fired. I think I read somewhere, but I, I can't verify that. So he may or may not have been chick They didn't use the word fire. They just said that someone has been disconnected from their platform or something. Oh, right. Oh, because he's not an employee of DoorDash. He's a gig worker. He's no longer on the platform. So they just, they, it's like Twitter suspending your account. Yeah. You can't log on anymore, right? No longer on the platform. Yeah. So I guess the question is, who's the asshole here? Mm-hmm. I think $5 is good for one pizza, right? It's a 25% tip. I mean, it's if we're looking at it from I mean, what so what what kind of a tip was he looking for? A 50% tip? Did he want did he want a $10 tip for a $20 pizza? Mhm. I, I don't know. I, I also I think that acting like that he's a he's being a dick. Well, I'll tell you right now I would not eat that pizza. I, that would not be a pizza that I eat um, mm. unless there was a um, sticker on it indicating that it like had the, not the been open. Like the freshness seal? Yeah, and I generally, I don't like, if I get an order and it isn't sealed in some way indicating that it was impossible to fuck with, I am uncomfortable eating it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I do worry about that. But I tip very well with deliveries and for some reason it doesn't seem to correlate with better service. Um, <laughs> Absolutely does not. So there will be times where I make an order and this this doesn't happen a lot, but it, like the tip will be... The twenty percent tip will become like seventeen and change or something, seventeen dollars and some change, and I'll round it up to twenty, right? Just to make it an even number, and also just give a little extra, sure, and hoping that it will translate into them like bringing the sushi immediately, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And that doesn't always happen. But listen, I don't give people negative reviews. I don't. I don't ever review delivery drivers. In fact, I, sh- I should probably do that in order to to boost their numbers. But like, I don't ever. If someone does give me a terrible delivery experience, I'm not going and giving them a review for that. Right, right, that makes right. me uncomfortable. I don't know why, but um, this guy seems a little bit more aggressive than anything I've encountered. So, well, no- it's also you're at somebody's home. You're. You know where they live, and you're. And she didn't say, "Hey, fuck you, buddy." She was like, "All right, well, thank you," and he gave her the fuck you. Yeah, I, I think that, she was a guy who's not cut out for customer service. You're you're not cut out for this work. Yeah, yeah. So I would be interested to know what the audience thinks. Who's in who's in the wrong? Who's in the right? And <laughs> for one pizza, I feel like five dollars. Well, listen, is we're not we're not really getting into the morass and the nuance of. Gig work is shitty. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. But that's not what is that discussion here. It's, is the tip adequate? Yeah. And listen, I take other things into consideration too, like the weather and if they're trekking over in the rain, if it was a longer distance away, like those are things that I think you should look at and then increase the tip as necessary. Yeah. But 
like if if he I think that's more of the question like it's one pizza five dollars seems reasonable did he have to drive a long time to get the pizza was it from like a place that was further away yeah, but that wouldn't be oh you mean yeah yeah I like see that. that might be sure. something that that could be taken into consideration like other variables I think that could contribute to his well anger. we do less delivery now mm-hmm. I mean there's a place over in Georgetown mm-hmm. which is not where we live in DC that we now just we drive over to it's like a 15 minute drive mm-hmm. but we drive to rather than the hassle of is it going to show up when's it going to show up how's it going to show up when it shows up mm-hmm. how, what condition we just we don't do delivery as much yeah that's because what I was... of these not because of this moment because we've never had a an interaction with a, with a driver that was bad yeah but certainly we've had things where we get the complete wrong order mm-hmm. i mean it's it's not great. They need to get their shit together. These companies like DoorDash, like Uber Eats, like Grubhub. I mean, there's a million of them now. Yeah, they won't. And <laughs> that's why I mentioned sushi, because we pretty much only have sushi delivered, and it's from a restaurant that we can't go into. I, I, that may not still be the case. I need to check to see if they've updated it. But even until recently, this was a restaurant that was not allowing people inside, like yeah. a carryover from COVID, but they have continued it for <laughs> a long time. I guess it's working for their business model. They're like, yeah, we don't want people in here. We're right, just, right. We'll do delivery only, and that's it. So, um, yeah. So let us know what you think about the delivery issues. We would love to hear who you think is correct and who is not correct. 657-464-7609. Or you can send an email to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Let's do Patreon and then we'll do listener communication. We would like to thank our new Patreon supporters, Micah L. Micah L. Kyra S. Kyra S. Mary Lou S. Mary Lou S. Nick S. Nick S. It's one of these days. <laughs> I don't know. Um, this is an E Stoltz. E S. <laughs> Bruce A R. Bruce A R. J- that, that's a familiar name. It is. J D. J D. Love that one. Trish. Trish. And Dimitru C. Dimitru C. And if I messed up any of those names, you feel free to write in and let us know. Thank you to each and every one of our Patreon supporters. We could not do this show without you, and that is absolutely true. One of the main perks of signing up on Patreon is that you get access to the ad-free show. So you don't have to listen to any ads. Not at the beginning, not in the not before Dollamocracy, not before Taking care of biz. You can just hear all those segments without those pesky ads. Go to patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. Now let's get to some listener communication. We have an email and a voicemail to play. And uh, without further ado, let's get to those. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Brittany. This is Catherine from California calling in response to the conversation you guys were having about RFK Jr.'s anti-vax um, talking points. And uh, I got so frustrated listening uh, to him open his mouth hole about things that he has no concept of. I was wondering if while listening to him, if he was using coded language to describe autism, because um 
the whole vaccines cause autism thing has been completely debunked. I actually did um, that topic as my master's thesis. But anyway, um, he was describing kids that have vaccines as low social engagement. And then he talked about kids not having the vaccines. Um, I forget his exact wording, but he used language like, oh, they make more eye contact. They're engaging. And I'm wondering if he's intentionally using coded language there, because if he specifically says vaccines cause autism, that's a more specific claim that um, can be easily debunked. And it's so frustrating to me because I work with kids with autism and I work with families of um, autistic kids and parents blame themselves enough. Whether you have an autistic kid or you have a typically developing child, parents blame themselves. And when you use that kind of language to say, oh, vaccines cause low social engagement and thing. As a parent, I'm going to blame myself. And I work with so many parents who blame themselves for any issues their children are having. And it's so frustrating because it's just poison. He's feeding poison to anybody that listens to him and he's causing parents to doubt themselves and think that they're doing wrong by their child when in fact they're helping prevent them from getting all these terrible diseases <sighs> let me know what you guys think bye it's an interesting perspective that i didn't like as she's talking about it uh Catherine, thank you for the voicemail uh i'm it was like oh that that's exactly what he's doing mm-hmm. that it would be it's it's absolute kookery, if you will, to to continue to say that vaccine co- vaccines cause autism. But if you generally and loosely describe what some of the manifestations of those uh, on the autism spectrum, what they display, then you have you have a plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it. Yeah, Catherine, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's a good perspective to hear what what parents go through and how parents blame themselves for these things and that is a new angle that I haven't really heard in the discussion about RFK and his and the damage that he's doing with these talking points is that it also creates an environment where parents are feeling increased guilt possibly yeah. about what they may have done to contribute to it um even if it's they did nothing they did nothing to contribute to it and he's having them believe that with the thing the things that he's saying He's a dangerous, uh, he is a kook. I mean, he's, he's like, there's a new movement now that anytime a celebrity has a health problem or someone notable has a, they die unexpectedly, it's immediately attributed to the vaccine. Whether it be Bob Saget or Jamie Foxx, it's always these kooks like Robert Kennedy Jr. who attribute their medical problems to the vaccine, even though we don't know. And, and oftentimes we do find out that it had nothing to do with the vaccine, but it just gives it gives them a little bit of of, uh, of wiggle room with people who do have some doubts. And it's as Catherine uh, described it; it's it's dangerous. Yeah, it absolutely. is it's poison. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the call. We appreciate it very much. Uh, I think we have a an email. That we do. Hi, J and B. I'm a longtime listener. I've followed you since episode forty two. <laughs> wow. 
It's very specific. (laughs) I am a British guy living in New Zealand who has always been fascinated with American politics. I've noticed similar echoes of Trumpish cult behavior in both right-wing supporters, politics, and the media since 2016. In Britain, Brexit seems to have ushered in a post-truth reality that has caused the country to rapidly fall from its place as a generally tolerant and welcoming society to one riven by fear, spite, and hatred. Watching America roll back Roe v. Wade, scale back affirmative action, continue to allow politicians to lie without consequence and still throw up thoughts and prayers while the police kill with impunity is morbidly fascinating. However, Britain is in its own staggering collapse. The famed health service is crumbling. There's shit in our seas and rivers. Practically every public sector is striking. We look to politicians to address these issues. And what is striking is that in both countries, the right wing deny the evidence of our eyes. The media often let them peddle their bullshit with little, if any, challenge. And for me, most frustratingly, there's no real challenge from the left. Labor in the UK is spineless and insipid and is relying on not being conservative, in quotes, in a similar way that the Democrats do in the U.S., although granted that Biden has shown some vision on green economics. I guess my question is, given that Britain and the U.S. were the juggernauts of the neoliberal project that began under Thatcher and Reagan, are we finally seeing the death knell of this kind of capitalism and politics as we hopefully enter a new dawn? They say alcoholics have to hit rock bottom before climbing back up and getting help. This could be the case here, question mark, question mark. Justin in New Zealand. Hmm. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Don't shoot the messenger, Justin in New Zealand. (laughs) But I don't see capitalism in its current form going anywhere for another 50 years or so. I mean, it may come to a time where we slowly, incrementally do away with or reform our system, but it's it's pretty inset. I mean, with income inequality as it is and the wealthy having so, so much of an outsized uh, amount of power, it just, it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And there are people who cling, especially in America, there's such a culture of the individual and this American dream myth and meritocracy that it's like you talk about just world hypothesis a lot and and people they believe that they get what they deserve because they worked really hard and so it's a self-fulfilling it's 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 a sort of confirmation bias that Mm -hmm. they work really hard and then they make it and then they attribute all the hard work rather than luck and the many other factors that that are at play so I, i just think a lot of things have to happen like maybe absolute economic collapse before we're able to like we would need another great depression and then government intervention in a way that fdr did to convince americans that the way we structure our our economy is is not good yeah yeah i don't know what it's going to take i think that um continuing to to talk with people about the important issues i think once you sit down and start talking to people you realize that a lot of people are closer to financial precarity than they would otherwise like to admit or 
can accept. I think we all kind of walk around because we, we have to survive. And so you like can't think about how close you might be to ruin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like it, it's a... It's well, also a, what good would that serve? I mean... Yeah, well, I mean, it could inform your empathy for other people who are, yeah. who are in difficult positions. But I think... We need to like radicalize people. Like, this was a theme on the show last time too. We need to radicalize people to understand that you know you you don't want to be one job loss away from catastrophe. Yeah. You you don't want to be one health scare away from catastrophe. This isn't how we should live our lives. It's it's not the game of life where you pick a card and you you know pull your your wage and you pick a card and you pull your ac- occupation and you pick a card and oh shit your car broke down this morning right. and now you're going to have to clear out your savings. I mean, this is not the way that we should be living and I think as we continue to face this affordability crisis and housing and and people are starting to realize and, and wake up that they don't want to operate this way they don't want to live this way that maybe we'll start getting to a point where we we stop having people defend billionaires on twitter and millionaires and wasting their breath defending people that don't care if they live or die and really focus on the politicians that are pushing for policies that will create more equality and give people what they need to create a life that is comfortable yeah I I like when you t- when you talk about radicalism and it, it goes back to what Justin was talking about in the about the leaders that aren't really willing to do it. It's milk toast central around with with Democrats. It, I can't really speak to to uh, Britain's politics, but Joe Biden trips all over himself to be. I'm not comfortable with packing the court. I'm not. Oh, that's too far. No, that's uh. When the Democrats have never tried to campaign on actual structural change. You've got a handful of politicians, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, but primarily the leaders of the Democratic Party are quaking in their boots. They're afraid to appear too radical, to appear too too much of an ally of the people. They are slaves to the system. They are cogs in the machine too often. And it is a breath of fresh air when we finally do see someone raise, um, rise through the levels of power who are willing to take on the system. And it's it resonates with people. It's not a fucking radical proposition. Yeah, even when the Supreme Court just ruled against Joe Biden's student debt cancellation yeah. program, he went on MSNBC and did an interview and talked about how expanding the court would be political and i mean this is we're already in a political moment i mean you're the president everything is political every everything is political <laughs> so so are there rulings not political so if the court is already political you're not making it more political you're just balancing the anti-democratic manner with which they have been appointed the, the, the supreme court now we're going far afield but i'm finishing the thought the supreme court the, the the conservative members of the Supreme Court, uh, it, with the exception of, of, of Clarence Thomas, were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote and were confirmed by a Senate. The Republicans represent far fewer Americans than Democratic senators because you've got two senators. We talked about this on the Patreon call last time. 
we have like for instance we'll just say two senators from idaho with a population of a million and a half and two senators from california with a population of over 60 million people and that's the case with wyoming two senators with a population of not even a million people in wyoming and two two democratic senators from washington state with a population of probably 25 million do you see the pattern here republicans represent fewer people in the united states so it's just it's not a a workable democratic system and i'm going all over the place here anyway it's we need politicians to be i don't like the term radicalize i mean i love it because what is your radicalizing moment it doesn't mean you're radical because if you're if you're coming away from if you're shifting your position from a radical republican position you're just coming back to normal but you know because of the overton window it it is kind of radicalism Mm -hmm. so i just want to say his quote he said i think it's a mistake on the possibility of expanding the court if we do start the process of expanding the court we're going to politicize it maybe forever in a way that is not healthy is is his quote and you mean unlike what we have now right joe biden right unlike what we have now it's totally unpolitical now unlike chief justice roberts bitching about how every opinion that is released is criticized (laughs) he's whining also we have justices who are taking extravagant gifts and trips on yachts and private jets that one leg of the private jet trip was $100,000, whose wives are getting $10 million payouts for their consultant work that just so happened to line up with the agenda of conservatives that co- and, the, and the issues that come before the court. So fuck straight off with this nonsense about, oh, it would be a mistake. <laughs> that so you, was me doing Joe Biden. So you know which politician you would agree with on this issue? AOC. That is right. And we will get to that clip on the other side when we start Dollamocracy. But before we do, I want to hear from you. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Dollamocracy. Facing down pessimistic politics with realistic optimism. So AOC was on with Dana Bash to discuss the the Supreme Court rulings. Of course, uh, Justin in New Zealand kind of covered uh, some of those rulings that came out where they gutted affirmative action. They uh, ruled that Joe Biden cannot move forward with his student debt cancellation plan, which means countless people received emails informing them, including you, Jesse, that you were going to have ten to $20,000, depending on whether or not you were a Pale Grant recipient, forgiven of your student loans. And the Supreme Court came out and said, give me that ten to $20,000 back. Right. You can't have it. I mean, that's what they did. Yeah. They said, no, these people that were going to have no student loan debt, many, many people, most people, the majority of people that were going to be helped by this program we're going to have all of their student loan debt eliminated. Right. And now the Supreme Court says no. So AOC went on to talk about this court being illegitimate and what the process could be for holding them accountable. How, how do you do that? How do, do you are you proposing a well, law? 
or bill? I, I, there's several ways. First, we have a Senate Judiciary Committee that is beginning the process of investigating the entanglements and conflicts of interest. Just one to two weeks before the student loan ruling, the country learned that Justice Samuel Alito was accepting gifts from billionaires who were lobbying against Supreme Court uh, forgive or that were lobbying before the Supreme Court against student loan forgiveness. Um, just, you know, just weeks before we learned that that he was accepting gifts from them um, and travel and vacations from them before he decided to uh, vote and rule in their favor. And so I believe that if Justice, if Chief Justice Roberts will not come before Congress for an investigation voluntarily, I believe that we should be considering subpoenas. We should be considering investigations. We must pass, pass much more binding and stringent ethics guidelines where we see members of Cong, uh, where we see members of the, of the Supreme Court potentially breaking the law, as we saw in the refusal, you know, with Clarence Thomas to recuse himself uh, from cases implicating his wife in, in January 6th. There also must be impeachment on the table. We have a broad level of tools to deal with misconduct, overreach, and abuse of power. And the Supreme Court has not been receiving the adequate oversight necessary in order to preserve their own legitimacy. And in the process, they themselves have been destroying the legitimacy of the court, which is profoundly dangerous for our entire democracy. Congresswoman Alexander. Tell me where she's wrong, first of all. Second of all, this is what, well, none of what she said it could happen with a Republican Congress, mm -hmm. with a Republican House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. That's where impeachment starts. That's where the process begins. So any investigation that's going to have any teeth or, or, or efficacy has to, has to be with Democrats because Republicans aren't going to look into this. They're not going to uncover the the collusion and corruption of 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 their supreme court picks uh with their donors who are billionaires so this is why voting matters this is why voting for um progressive candidates for congress fucking matters absolutely yeah and you don't hear very many elected officials talking about how to provide oversight, greater oversight for the Supreme Court. And that is a very important issue, given that they are completely they're legislating from the court. That's yeah, what they're right. doing, which is the which, which is the time honored thing that Republicans have whined about for decades and decades that oh they're legislating from the bench this is this is their it's judicial overreach it's it's judicial activism and that's what we have mm -hmm. again every accusation is a confession yeah so continuing with the theme of republican inaction we also had continued mass shootings over the holiday weekend yeah. one happened in philadelphia and there was another instance where, you know, they have the the press conference. We see this pattern play out whenever the mass shootings happen. They're needing to respond to the press who wants information on the suspect, on the shooting. And the district attorney was giving a speech and actually took some time to call out the lack of effective gun legislation in this country. It is disgusting, the lack of proper gun legislation that we have in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I cannot agree more heartily with the mayor. It is disgusting. 
that you can go to New Jersey and find a whole list of reasonable gun regulation that we don't have, that you can go to Delaware and there's almost as long a list of reasonable gun legislation that we don't have. Some of that legislation might have made a difference here. And it is time for everybody in our legislature, including the ones who would like to walk around with an AR-15 lapel pin, it is time for every one of them to face the voters. And if they're not going to do something, then the voters are going to have to vote them out. Because that's what that lapel pin means. It means vote me out. I am against you, and I am against your safety. And a lot of us have had enough of it. I can tell you I certainly have had enough of it. Um, I would ask everyone, I know how painful this is, how emotional it is. Everyone who is there, we intend to help you any way we can. We know the police department does. We know the city does. We intend to help you any way we can. Please do not think in terms of any kind of violent response. Please do not think in terms of anything other than peace on the streets. The man who has done this horrible thing is in a jail cell. He's going to stay there. You cannot get to him to hurt him. So please do not hurt anyone else. Thank you. So the suspect said that he carried out this attack to clean up the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And he had made posts on social media in pro-gun groups, uh, posts that were supportive of Donald Trump, supportive of the Second Amendment, uh, talking about how Biden was trying to, quote, take our arms, um, posting that the only thing more terrifying than blindness is being the only one that can see. So when the DA talked about the lapel pins, I think that it 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 illustrates who they're talking to, right? It's these yeah. people that are motivated to, quote unquote, clean up the streets, who are worried about protecting their guns, who are under some sort of indoctrination about what is going to happen to them and how the Democrats are coming for their guns and how dangerous the cities are and how you need to protect yourself. And they're walking around these legislators with AR-15 pins, the same instruments that are being used to murder innocent people in the streets every weekend. And it it is a symbol of vote me out because... They hold a position that is radical relative to the vast majority of Americans who agree with sensible, common sense gun legislation, um, up to and including banning the AR-15 and AR-15 style weapons, but also red flag laws, uh, magazine limits, the size of magazine, limited in the size. Of, I mean, it's. There are basic things you can do that aren't going to eliminate mass shootings, but they certainly will will lessen the 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 scope of the carnage that can take place during one particular individual shooting. Mm-hmm. And if it has to be incremental, then you know what? I'll take incremental. Mm-hmm. But they stand in opposition to anything being done. All they do is talk about, oh, well, we'll, we need more mental health funding. Well, fuck yeah, let's start there. Let's start there. But they won't even, it's just talking about it. They don't actually want to do the thing they say is to to solve the thing they say is a problem. Mm -hmm. It's just fucking gross. Yeah. So rather than focus on the important things, there has been a recent pivot in the media to 
um, a story that is fascinating everyone, and that is the cocaine that was found <laughs> so stupid in the White House, and the conservative commentators and news outlets are um, bringing up Hunter Biden in this discussion, like trying to implicate Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, who has struggled with addiction in the past, trying to implicate him and whether or not this could be his cocaine. Yeah, should we say up front that it was found in like a public area where like tourists go, like where they put their, they store their things in like cubbies while they go on a tour. This wasn't in the residence. This wasn't in the Oval Office. This was not even in staff area. This was a public access area where the coke was found. Yes, it was. Law enforcement officials say the leading theory is someone at the White House on a tour. Someone on a White House tour may have left that small bag of cocaine. And the White House says President Biden has been briefed on the matter and thinks it's very important to figure out what happened. We have confidence that the Secret Service is going to get to the bottom of this. As the Secret Service investigates who brought a small plastic bag of cocaine into the West Wing, the White House maintains that many people had access to the area. Where this was discovered uh, is a heavily traveled area where many White House, uh, West Wing, I should be even more specific, uh, West Wing visitors uh, come through. The bag was discovered on the ground floor, according to a senior law enforcement official in a an area near the entry of the West Wing. It was close to a set of storage cubbies where visitors leave their cell phones during a tour. The indications uh, seem to me that it probably was somebody involved in a tour uh, because keep in mind uh, the Secret Service uh, detailees to the White House and the White House staff are uh, routinely drug tested at random. The White House confirms there were West Wing tours on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. All visitors are vetted and go through security before coming on White House grounds. The Secret Service has a canine unit that checks for explosive devices and biohazardous materials, not specifically for narcotics. Visitor logs and camera surveillance are now being searched for clues. I think in the end they'll be able to screen <laughs> it down Scooby -Doo? Uh, well enough, but there is a possibility that uh, you may never determine who did this. Now, the incident has caused some to question the security protocols here at the White House and how illicit drugs on, could be man. brought in. Republican Senator Tom Cotton, who's a member of the Judiciary Committee, has written a letter to the Director of Secret Service asking for a plan to correct any security flaws. Tom Cotton on the case. Tom Cotton searching for clues. Oh, my God. They He's writing a letter to... He wants to know the security corrections that will be made so that cocaine is not allowed in the White House anymore. I want full pat-down and body cavity searches of all tourists coming to the White House. Yeah, I mean, I guess they just didn't expect that someone would, like, think that they're going to take a break from the White House tour and snort some coke in the bathroom while they're there, you know? Yeah, no, no kidding. Well, and I had the thought that... Because this got picked up and, and connected to Hunter Biden so quickly, and it just seems weird that someone would bring their cocaine to the White House. Yeah. I just thought, did someone like bring it because they wanted to create a news cycle about Hunter Biden and the cocaine at the White House? Also, I mean, I don't want to be conspiratorial, but I just... Well, it, I think it, it bears the question. Because yeah. well, it's like... It's like the, the, the Halloween candy thing. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Like, people are just going to be giving their expensive fentanyl to kids willy-nilly. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, drug dealers, mm-hmm. it's a charitable endeavor. They love to give away drugs. Yes. It's the same thing here. It's. I mean, I think that it's a valid question. I don't think it's a conspiracy. It's, could this be? Mm-hmm. Because people don't just, especially a baggy with enough coke that you're like, oh, there's a white powdery substance in there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much cocaine is, but it seems like it's not super cheap, you know? Well, also, you just, I mean, I don't know. I would think that you're not going to bring your your cocaine to a courthouse, you know, and you're going to go through a similar security checkpoint at the White House. So, yeah, it just seems, I don't know, who's, who's... Maybe they forgot. They just accidentally had the cocaine in their pocket, and then it fell out. Maybe they hadn't done the cocaine for a long time, so they were a little sleepy, (laughs) and then just forgot it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) But I thought that I thought that news package was very funny, and a small bag of cocaine. We're looking at the clues. We're looking at the security checkpoints. Zoinks! (laughs) (laughs) That's my Scooby Doo. Yeah. But I know this is surprising, but there are more important things happening than the cocaine that was found in the White House. Yeah. (laughs) The small amount of cocaine. Uh, One of those things is that Idaho is disbanding its Maternal Mortality Review Committee. That's prick shit, bro. That's prick shit. Now, if you're wondering what this is, it's just like a committee of different experts that come together to look at the deaths that that happened during or within a year of pregnancy mm-hmm. to figure out why it happened, what are the factors that contributed to it, and, and then to come up with... What can we do with, to prevent it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. ultimately, that's what it is, is they're looking at how can we, we start preventing these things. And I know you're probably wondering, you know, well, what is Idaho's mortality ratio compared to the United States' mortality ratio. Well, you know what? I have those numbers for I'm going to guess not good. (laughs) So the CDC released this data on the maternal mortality rate in the United States. And in 2021, it was 32.9 deaths per 100,000 live births. Seems high. 32.9. In Idaho, that number is 41.8. So it is higher than, than what the is already high. Correct. Yeah. And so the way that they're handling this in Idaho, where they have a total abortion ban, by the way, yeah, is by disbanding the the maternal mortality committee that would look at what is happening with deaths in pregnancy and how you can prevent it. The start of a new fiscal year creates new beginnings. But Dr. Stacy Seib knows it can also be an endpoint. As of July 1, uh, the Maternal Mortality Review Committee is disbanded. Dr. Seib sat on the committee for all four years, working to evaluate pregnancy-related deaths, complications, and find answers. It's not necessarily to find someone to blame, but how do we improve our systems? So and find, make sure that we have the resources uh, so that women are not in danger. Because the numbers show some pregnant women in Idaho are. From 2018 to 2020, the committee reports show all 21 pregnancy-related deaths were preventable, 
In the latest report detailed numbers from 2021. It showed 15 of 17 deaths could have been prevented too. We won't have the ability to look at cases from sort of a multidisciplinary uh, way anymore. And what you end up with kind of with some raw numbers. We heard a GOP lawmaker tell us this sort of committee just collected data. There wasn't a work product to find solutions here. First thing I would say, it was only in existence in for four years, okay? We were establishing a baseline to try and figure out where we were at and where we were going. It's not the type of work that is reactive, okay? It's trying to put together the trends, find out what are the biggest problems, investigating to see what needs to be done. And they did. Each report filed key recommendations. They directly addressed the very issues the committee observed in that annual review a review that some say is necessary. Yes, that is true. Including Susie Keller. I can tell you Idaho physicians very much feel that the work of the MMRC does produce real results and real recommendations that could save lives. She's the Idaho Medical Association's CEO. They wrote the original bill to create this committee back in 2019. Why was there a sunset in this? Mm -hmm. Was that needed to compromise? Yes, and I think that's a fair compromise. Anytime you're suggesting a new government entity in the state of Idaho, I think it's only fair that um, it prove its worth. In this case, we absolutely think it has proven its worth in showing that we do have a problem with increasing maternal deaths in the state of Idaho. And the committee has also provided some solid recommendations for us to implement to improve that and making sure we don't have women needlessly dying. Well, then what happens? What are we missing out on Idahoans? What are the problems going to be? I think what I'm most worried about is the fact that we won't have the information uh, that we need, um, not only to improve care, but let's go to where the problem is. You know, simple statistics aren't necessarily as useful uh, without digging deeper. And that's why a few years of looking at it is not like, oh, we got it fixed. You know, we're done. We got to continue to look at it and monitor it. So the party of family values in the state of family values that is chock full in the legislature of Mormons who are the religion of be fruitful and fucking multiply seem to not care about continuing with their domestic source of babies, as Samuel Alito put it, in the uh, in the row over overturning. Well, and Idaho again is one of the most restrictive states when it comes to their abortion law. Yeah, and this year they also declined to expand the postpartum Medicaid coverage. So because of the American Rescue Plan, states were able to change their continuous Medicaid coverage to one full year following delivery without applying for a waiver, and. Idaho <laughs> decided to not expand coverage. This also seems very reminiscent of how Donald Trump treated COVID. Like, well, we're testing too much. If we if we didn't test as much, we wouldn't have as many positive cases. So if we don't if we don't know what's happening, then we can just ignore that the thing is actually happening. And women, citizens, Americans, like the things that Republicans claim to care about are dying and they they want to just turn a blind eye 
Yeah, well, and according to the CDC, for every maternal death, there are about 100 near misses or, you know, near deaths yeah. because of things that happen either during or after the pregnancy. And so when you have a state like Idaho with an abortion ban who also declined to expand Medicaid coverage yeah. uh, in the year after delivery, when someone is still medically vulnerable and if they don't have insurance is not going to be able to have access to go in and get help if they need help i mean if you are a republican if you are in these states that want these total abortion bans or you you know want these quote-unquote exceptions that don't ultimately end up being exceptions because the hoops are so high you can't jump through them then this appears to be just about punishing women and not actually caring about life not caring about the baby, not caring about the mother, because if you did, you would put policies in place that actually support flourishing. Yeah. And you're not doing that. The other the other aspect of this that probably isn't as impactful in Idaho because it's such a white state is the the numbers for African American women in this country, the the mortality problem with with pregnant black women is astronomically higher than it is for white women. Mm-hmm. So if you're if just being a white woman who's pregnant in Idaho, if that is a, a danger, imagine being a, a a black woman in Idaho who's pregnant. It's it's emergency time. Mm-hmm. I just ah. the Republican Party, and again we're getting back to what radicalism is in radicalizing oneself. Mm-hmm. It's not radical to fight against this kind of shit, and we need politicians who are willing courageous enough to actually step up and fucking do something. Yeah. Well, you know who's courageous enough is Illinois state rep Chris Miller, Republican. (laughs) He's not. He's not. (laughs) But this is going to be a nice moment of levity toward the end of the show because uh, he, he has a nice justification for why we shouldn't worry about climate change. Like, you might be worried about it. You might be in an existential crisis right now worried about climate change. But Chris Miller is here to let you know why exactly you should not be worried about climate change. Can I take a guess? Is the reason, like, super smart and awesome? <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're not having a climate crisis. But what we are having is a crisis of common sense. If you think about it, CO2, uh, man-made CO2, collectively adds up to one one-hundredth of one percent of the atmosphere around the globe. If you think about the entire CO2, it's about four one-hundredths of one percent. And there's one thing that I know is that I remember from earth science class, there's something called photosynthesis, and it's where green leafy plants actually absorb carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. And it's the way God made it, a way to clean up the climate and to keep things in balance the way it should be. <laughs> So don't worry about it because God made trees. Also, this guy's an expert. He took earth science in, I mean, when do you take earth science? Like seventh grade, eighth grade? Yeah. 
Well, because ninth grade is physical science. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This guy's Illinois. Maybe it's different elsewhere. Yes. <laughs> Come well, on. I did read. So it looks like okay, he earned an associate degree from Lincoln Land Community College. No hate on community college. I went to community yeah, college. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Golden West and a Bachelor of Science in Education in Education. <laughs> wow. From Eureka College. So he is not a scientist. Not a scientist. He doesn't study the climate. And this is kind of the this is the problem. This is what we're talking about even with RFK and vaccines. It's like, common sense, y'all herbiter. Yeah, just because you took an earth science class and learned about photosynthesis <laughs> does not mean that you now get to opine about climate change. Yeah. Please. It's also stop electing dumb fucks. Please. Well, this- if you're in Illinois, if you're in this guy's district, <laughs> Start volunteering on campaigns to get rid of this fucking oaf. Well, and this has happened to me where I'll be talking about whatever issues related to psychology, which is what my graduate degree is in. And then someone will tell me... Like Tony Soprano? Yes. Yes. Look, I took intro to psych. I know the fundamentals. (laughs) Well, and I've had people argue with me about certain things, and, and they will use as a justification for their argument... I I learned in my class that I took, and then I'll my ask, Psych 101 class. Well, and it's happened where it's like they took it in the 80s, you know. And I mean, things change. Like just because you learned something in the 80s or the 90s or the year 2000 right. does not mean that those things are now the same in in the year 2021 or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, or 2023, where we are. Yeah. Well, I'm. <laughs> Trying to place the conversation. Oh, right, right, right. But, yeah, so things change, and this this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, obviously. So well, what is the, What's the Tony Soprano line? Uh, I have a semester and a half, yeah. uh, so I understand Freud yeah. as a concept. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I love that one. Uh, we'd love to know what you guys think. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email, as always... Uh, a voice memo or a regular old-fashioned email to idoubtit at dollamore.com. Taking care of biz. Sphinx Overture. I love when you plan the shows now because <laughs> I didn't know about the, the Chris Miller clip. I didn't know what that was. I don't know what this is. It's great. I'm along for the ride, too, audience. Yeah. So this is an organization out of Detroit that is working to ensure that there is equitable access to classical music for students of color. It started over 25 years ago. For me, you know, I was often the only person student child of color uh, growing up playing the violin. As a black classical musician, Aaron Dworkin wanted to change the genre's landscape. Classical music is both for us and by us. Together with his wife, Afa Dworkin, they created Sphinx Music. An organization focused on creating a pipeline of black and Latinx talent. And the narrative of classical music would have you believe that it's pretty monochromatic and it belongs to the Western European world. Today, just over 79% of classical musicians in the United States are white. Only 4.8% identify as Latinx and 2.4% identify as black. Though the number of musicians identifying as a person of color has increased from 15% to nearly 21% in just the last seven 
seven years. And in order for classical music to have a sense of relevance for communities, it needs to be representative uh, by all of the voices within the community. Was proud of what I was able to bring with my heritage to classical music. Joseph Conyers was in the very first Sphinx cohort back in 1998. Now he's the principal bassist for one of the country's leading classical groups, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and he teaches at Juilliard. I'm seeing the next generation coming up behind me. Look how far things have come since when I was growing up. This June, students at the Cesar Chavez Academy, a majority Latinx school in Detroit, are preparing for their year-end recital. I like violin because it, it had like these peaceful notes. When you play it, it sounds so peaceful. Ten-year-old Donnie Salas <laughs> started playing the violin two years ago through his school's partnership with Sphinx. His mom says it's made a difference. Programs like this actually help these children that want to play. After 25 years, Sphinx has nearly 1,100 alumni and over $10 million invested in black and brown musicians. Sphinx's goal is transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts. The classical music shift coming one note at a time. Sinclair Samoa, NBC News. That kid was so cute. Yeah, he was. <laughs> They're still going with the Latinx, huh? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I've seen that term is controversial. That 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 even people within the community don't want that term used. So yeah, that's I, what I read. Yeah. Is that it's kind of a like a white savior created term. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So CBS, I was just, it was great. It was jarring when I heard it. Like, wow, oh, they're still sticking with the Latinx, huh? Yeah. So what a great program. Yeah. Awesome. I, and listen, I'm not. I don't fucking know classical music from country music. I, you know. They're both pretty not my thing. But I will say this. Every time we've had an occasion to be where classical music is being played live, it is, there's, it's kind of a magical... It's magic, everybody. It's pretty fucking great. Mm-hmm. Like, there's been moments where we went to the Hollywood Bowl, mm-hmm. where the, the the Hollywood Bowl Philharmonic or whatever that band is, yeah. like, they we've been to Earth, Wind & Fire concerts where they backed up the band, and it's pretty fucking awesome mm-hmm. even when it's classical and not you know uh, an arrangement of of a of a philharmonic doing funk music you know yeah yeah it's 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 got to be an enriching thing i think all children could benefit from their world being their the horizons being expanded to something different and new and what a Fucking awesome getting it done program. Yeah, for sure. So, or as some would say, taking care of biz. And <laughs> that's another way to put it. Brittany Page. Yeah. <laughs> so Sphinx Overture is taking care of biz. Yeah. We'd love to know what you guys think. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can email, I doubt it, at dollamore.com. We would once again invite you to join the Patreon family, help support our work, help produce this program. Go to patreon.com slash I doubt it podcast. Pick your tier. See what's involved. For $2 a month, you could be a part of uh, of growing this particular little show that could. Anyway, we love you guys. We will see you next time. Um, we appreciate you so much. Thanks for uh, engaging. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend and helping us grow the show. We'll see you next time. For Brittany Page, I'm Jesse Dollimore, and this has been... I doubt.